What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined as always by site publisher Chris Cartman. And Chris, it's it's been a minute since we jumped on a podcast. How have the last few weeks been for you? Well, you know, we got that sort of nice holiday, a little break there. But since then, it's been really busy. Mason, I think you know, people uh, on our site know that uh, with a lot of coaching um, uh, news developing and, you know, just trying to get the roster solidified and then recruiting stuff uh, coming down the stretch with the week left until the regular signing day, which not so much left for ASU to accomplish, but uh, because of what they've done in the transfer market and the early signing period, but still all that stuff plus basketball going on. You know, it's a lot. Right. Just because the football season ends doesn't mean that we stop our grind for sure. There's a lot that goes on that uh, we're keeping everyone up to date with. And the coaching search, there's been uh, quite a few developments in the last few weeks. And, and we'll start off with specifically and relatively recently the offensive line. This was a situation where... I mean, everyone in ASU's program knew that Dave Christensen was going to be retiring at season's end. Chris, you told subscribers this pretty early on in the season, and it seemed as if Kevin Mawai was kind of being groomed for the offensive line coach-in-waiting type role, but then he wasn't hired right away. ASU ends up announcing the hiring of Indianapolis Colts assistant offensive line coach Clayton Adams as the Sun Devils offensive line coach and run game coordinator. But as we reported yesterday and, and got confirmed, he has since decided to stay with the Colts. Can you kind of get into what all happened with that whole situation? Yeah, so uh, ASU initially interviewed Clayton Adams a week and a half ago, roughly. And uh, he was one of a few uh, options that they were looking at really at the top of the list. Uh, had done a good job with the Colorado Buffaloes um, for a few years, including when Philip Lindsay was back-to-back thousand-yard rusher. And uh, after the interview, he, he really impressed ASU coaches. They decided that they wanted to hire him. He signed essentially what's called an offer sheet. Uh, but then subsequent to that, the, the Colts lost their offensive coordinator uh, Nick Sirianni to uh, the, the Eagles. And I guess the Colts recognizing that Adams was going to be leaving to ASU because he had the offer sheets signed, decided that they didn't want to lose more of their offensive staff. And they uh, gave him a big raise, I heard. I don't know the specific number, but it was substantial. And um, he decided that he was going to stay with the Colts. Uh, and, and, and that's you know, he had a tendency to do that because in the, he did it um, after Mike, Mike McIntyre's staff was fired at Colorado and he didn't have a job. He accepted the offensive line job at Wyoming with it. And then within a very short time after that, also left Wyoming to go to the Colts. These types of things happen in coaching. Uh, I, I mentioned a few other previous times it's happened at ASU um, in the past. Uh, Van Malone. Um, Cody Burns and even Chris Thompson, who then later on still came back to ASU, uh, anyways. So even when guys sign, uh, and even when even if they take jobs and start working out of place, you know, very often uh, there can still be additional movements in, until you get to uh, February. 
And Chris, you've reported in the Devil's Sanctuary, and for those listening, make sure you you subscribe and get in there for even more uh, analysis. But you you've mentioned two candidates who are kind of in the running for ASU's offensive line job, and because I know people are curious and are going to ask at some point, is Kevin Mawai still involved in this race? Yeah. So first of all, Kevin Mawai is not um, going to be the offensive line coach at ASU, and it's pretty clear pretty confident that he's not going to be on ASU staff in any capacity. Uh, he also interviewed for the job and uh, you know, you would think that he should have had the inside track given his background with Herm Edwards, uh, having played for him and how long they've known each other. And the fact that Kevin Wise is of course a hall of fame uh, center, but uh, ASU coaches decided that they wanted to go in a different direction with, um, you know, the initial Clayton Adams uh, hire. And I think that ship has completely sailed now and they will not try to double back to Kevin Mawai, the most likely candidate for the job. And I think it's, it's pretty close. Uh, it's, it's whether or not he's going to accept it, which, you know, recording this on Wednesday morning, by the time people listen, it may already be a done deal. I don't know. That's, sort of the nature of podcasts, but um, Mike Cavanaugh, who is Syracuse offensive line coach, um, he's a you know multiple decade veteran of coaching. Um, you know, he was uh, at, at Albany in 1986. So he goes back a long time. He's been in the FBS level since 99 with Hawaii. Uh, for a long time, he, he was the Mike Riley's offensive line coach at Oregon State for about a decade, mid-2000 uh, to 2014, I believe, um, you know, they were very successful at, uh, under Riley. I mean, they had, uh, I think, five seasons with eight or more wins, which is very difficult to do at Oregon State. Uh, it's a, a pro-style sort of a scheme, uh, you know, very strong sort of run game and protection uh, approach. And uh, that's something that I, I, I am confident really appeals to Zach Hill. And that's why I think that Kavanaugh is uh, so well considered and a front runner for the job, but we'll see if he wants to take it, you know, and then the second most likely candidate, I think at this point is San Diego state's uh, offensive line coach, Mike Schmidt, who's been there for a long time, 11 years, um, you know, people, people, ASU fans are familiar because uh, they beat, you know, ASU recently and were very successful. Uh, they, they've done a great job at San Diego State, both identifying talent, developing talent. And on top of that, they have a very physical uh, sort of a disposition with their run game. So, um, you know, Schmidt and Kavanaugh have a lot of stylistic similarities. Uh, and so you can see from when you compare them, if you go back and you watch like, um, you know, the way that Mike Riley has coached at Nebraska and Oregon State and their line plays, you look at Schmidt's line plays, uh, line play, pardon me, at San Diego State, you see that they're in this sort of this similar mold and you can tell what ASU is trying to do. This is a, a position group where you, you want to have better recruiters and that's part of why. Um, you know, I think Kevin Wise is not going to be the coach, but on top of that, you need people that you can reliably count on to, uh, to not be flustered or out of sorts when teams come out and do different things with their defensive fronts, their, their blitz pressures, uh, how they're 
uh, uh, trying to defend run game action. So, so uh, Kavanaugh and Schmidt both have a really huge body of work that enables coaches to feel good about that. Now, you know, is Kavanaugh is an older guy, uh, never at a high level. Is he going to be able to recruit, uh, you know, as effectively? I don't know about that, but what I can say is ASU has, you know, and we'll talk about this later on the podcast, but ASU has put together a staff that can support, um, not having a great recruiting offensive line coach. And that is, as we've talked about previously, the one position on the field, other than your coordinators, that position coach, where you absolutely 100% need to have really good coaching. And so that I think it, it has been prioritized here. Right. And that's kind of what we've seen with Dave Christensen, at least in the the latter years of his tenure at ASU and, and kind of getting support in the recruiting element from, from other guys. But I think this staff is better set up to help in that regard, which, which like you said, we'll get to here in a little bit, but the other opening that ASU head coach Herm Edwards needed to fill was at linebacker considering Antonio Pierce dropped that duty a little bit. Once he was elevated to sole defensive coordinator, Marvin Lewis goes from co-defensive coordinator back to his kind of special advisor role that he had in 2019. And now that Antonio Pierce is sole defensive coordinator, recruiting coordinator, associate head coach, it opened up a need for, for a fully dedicated linebackers coach and ASU subsequently hired Chris Claiborne, who was offensive quality control analyst at USC. Chris, what was your take on the hire and, and just how important it is moving forward for ASU and, and what he brings to the Sun Devils? Well, this was clearly Antonio Pierce's top pick that he wanted. Chris Claiborne uh, is a name that fans of the Pac-12 should know really well. He was USC's only Butkus Award winner. Uh, 1998 season, he was the defensive player of the year in the Pac-10. Just an absolutely dominant college linebacker. One of the best that we've seen in recent history in the conference. And went on to play for eight seasons in the NFL with four teams. Um, You know, so he fits that whole pro model. Uh, he's, He's just cutting his teeth in coaching. You know, he was... Uh, just one year, a, a quality control analyst with the Trojans. So that's the first time he's been at the college or professional level as a coach, even as a 42 year old. Um, and, you know, so in that standpoint, it's not that dissimilar from the path that Antonio Pierce had, right? A guy who goes and plays linebacker in the NFL for the better part of a decade, uh, drops, you know, back into doing some other things, becomes a high school coach. Pierce was at Long Beach Poly as the high school head coach. Chris Claiborne was an assistant coach at Long Beach Poly, as well as a few other prominent uh, high schools in the Southern California region, including Corona, Oaks Christian, um, maybe one other one, Calabasas. He was a defensive coordinator. Then he became the head coach at Calabasas for two years with 17 and six that led to him becoming the quality control analyst with the Trojans. Now, I think the big sort of story here is that ASU is, uh, been on this um, trajectory where they've been competing more and more with USC uh, in the arena of recruiting and with their staffing. Of course, people will remember Chris Hawkins 
was a, a, uh, a graduate assistant at USC when he became the youngest uh, coach in the Pac-12 when ASU hired him before last year. And, um, you know, Prentice Gill had previously been uh, in a similar capacity at USC before he went on to Oregon. And so, and, you know, Antonio Pierce, you know, even though he, um, you know, played at Arizona, he had these tremendous roots in Southern California and connected to people who had played for coach four at USC. So we've seen this movement very clearly of ASU trying to, you know, uh, fully embrace and support its, its pro model, you know, the quote unquote, you know, whole thing that, um, people, you know, uh, scratch their heads at when Herm Edwards arrived, but now they understand exactly what it is. Uh, they've done a good job in that regard and they're putting together, an impressive staff. Chris Claiborne is the type of guy he's going to go. He, he has such name recognition uh, that he will every single high profile recruit that he goes after in California or the West uh, entirely is going to be very interested in having a dialogue with him, just such similar to what they were with Antonio Pierce. And now you get the opportunity to sort of tag team some of these recruitments with, with, with two guys like that. And you give Antonio Pierce more freedom to not, you know, to recruit, uh, cherry pick in some other spots, other positions, maybe some offensive guys, because what you have in Claiborne allows you to have some measure of confidence so that you're probably going to get some really good linebackers. Right. And it's not all, I mean, there's still across the entire staff right now. I mean, it's a very good mix of, of, some older experience and some youthful guys, some aggressive recruiters, but defensively, as we look at it, you have Antonio Pierce as sole defensive coordinator, Chris Claiborne at linebackers, Robert Rodriguez at defensive line and Chris Hawkins in the secondary. Chris, how do you just evaluate the defensive staff as it stands right now? Looks pretty good. Uh, pretty, I would say clearly Rodriguez came in and made a major impact when ASU, you know, changed to the four man front uh, for not, Blitzing a, a, a heck of a lot last year. They they got tremendous pressure on quarterbacks, especially given that their end situation looked pretty, you know, average at best going into the year. Uh, he brought a lot of the the the, the tools and that uh, you know enabled the Minnesota Vikings to, to you know help them be very successful to ASU. It's translated. I think that's going to probably continue to be the case. I think Chris Hawkins, you look at ASU's secondary performance overall in his first season, I, I would say it was pretty good. We saw a clear continuation of progress in both, um, you know, Chase Lucas, also Evan Fields. Those guys took a, a very good step forward. The biggest hit, of course, was that uh, Jack Jones and Ashari Crosswell were suspended. Crosswell no longer with the team. Jack Jones is coming back, though, which is, to me is an indication that he, you know, recognizes and understands that you know he has some improvement that he's still try, striving for and trying to get. And it wasn't like he had some issue with the way that ASU handled that whole situation. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be coming back to ASU, especially when you have the uh the transfer role that appears to be going into place you know, they haven't voted it in yet but it appears to be going into place this year which would enable guys to transfer without penalty uh and then he has you know the he would have had the possibility of uh you know going on to the nfl level so um you know antonio pierce with the linebackers i think you know they clearly um 
there's a, a high expectations for those guys, especially when you have uh, Merlin Robertson, Darian Butler, uh, Kyle Soley coming back another year. They have to elevate their play. Um, but they have some really untalented players that we saw against Arizona and Oregon State take the field and look good. Get, you know, they all got interceptions pretty much, right? Uh, Connor Soley, uh, Jordan Banks, Kayla McCullough, Will Schaefer. Uh, they all look good to me. So uh, I think that their the talent, the experience, the coaching, it all seems, and the culture, I would say most importantly of all, they all seem to be in a pretty good place right now. And how important just overall was ASU retaining Antonio Pierce? Because, I mean, we reported earlier in the offseason that there was potential that, that he could possibly go to Arizona for their head coaching vacancy and also Marvin Lewis staying on in his special advisor role capacity. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that I really want to get into in a, a ton of detail in our member podcast that we'll have and, you know, coming up and we're going to be doing some, I'm going to have some reporting on this, uh, looking at ASU recruiting across the last 50 years. Um, you know, I've talked to a bunch of sources, people who coached at ASU in the seventies and eighties and, uh, and have followed the program for a really long time. So there's going to be a ton more stuff on this. And, but you know, the, the, to me, the, the blueprint for success at ASU is having really great analysts like um, Marvin Lewis and Donnie Henderson, who's um, he was a coach at ASU in the 96 Rose Bowl season and, and, and through the early to middle portion of um, that Bruce Snyder era, uh, mentoring the coaches that you have on your staff, like Chris Hawkins and who's, you know, 25 turns 26 at, 26 in, in March, I think. So what, what, you know, you have, what you have as a pathway to being successful at ASU really is uh, getting young coaches on the field early who probably wouldn't be able to get those jobs at the elite schools around the country and allowing them to develop while having them be sort of uh, overseen by the Herm Edwards, Marvin Lewis, Donnie Hendersons of the world. And in a perfect world, you know, they get offensive guys to be able to do that as well. The Dave Christensen types, I don't think he's staying on as an analyst, but guys who are like that in that type of a mold uh, that can coach your coaches. And then you get really strong Adam Brenneman like graduate assistants uh, into those roles after, after guys are done with their playing careers, uh, you know, and, and uh, when you do lose coaches, because invariably that it will happen, you know, uh, you, you, you develop, you know, Hawkins or Prentice Gill or Brenneman um, for several years or maybe less. And the top 15, you know, schools in the country are going to come calling and it's hard to match some of that financially sometimes. And, uh, but, but then you're in a better place. And so what Antonio Pierce does, circling back to what you initially asked me, he is the connective tissue to ev all of these things. He was uh, prominently involved in ASU bringing in uh, Hawkins, Gill, Claiborne, and others, Brenneman, making sure that Brenneman got promoted and is on this current trajectory and he is essential in connecting to the players on ASU's team so in the event that he had left you probably would have seen you know key players uh go with him 
or go somewhere else because of the value and the relationships and what he brings to ASU's culture and continuity. And what we've seen historically at ASU, and this is again, something we're gonna be getting into a lot, a lot more, but we've seen uh, all of the, the, the regimes since Frank Cush that lasted more than four or five years at ASU, and there've been several of them, they have not been able to keep their staffing intact. And when they have lost some of their top recruiters and their top culture type coaches, uh, it has really sapped their momentum in a way that has uh, um, led to those coaches ultimately all basically getting fired. And so what we see here with ASU's retention of Antonio Pierce and others on this staff, uh, Prentice Gill included, are the indications of ASU football at an administrative and even higher level, presidential level, uh, sort of coming to a better understanding of what it's going to take for ASU to successfully compete with the upper echelon programs across the country in college football and to have any chance at fulfilling what Ray Anderson said. And a lot of ASU fans listening will remember this um, after the, after the decision to move on from Todd Graham, he said in the press conference, he thinks ASU should regularly be, I'm paraphrasing, but regularly be a top three team in the PAC 12 and a top 15 type of a team nationally. Well, Staffing continuity, increasing your salary pool for your assistance, and uh, making sure that you have the right support staffing infrastructure in place are all essential components of being able to do that successfully. And I'm seeing signs that ASU is moving in the right direction in those areas. And as we did with the defensive staff, getting into the offensive staff overview with Zach Hill, offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, offensive line still undetermined, Kavanaugh Schmidt, potentially others as we're recording this Wednesday, July or January 27th, excuse me, and, and could happen as soon as today, an announcement. Tight ends, Adam Bredeman promoted from offensive graduate assistant to the sole tight ends coach. Wide receiver, Prentice Gill, which Chris mentioned, some drama there and, and uh, ASU retains him in that role and running backs, Sean Aguano, Chris, where do you see the offensive staff stacking up maybe with the defensive staff, but also just overall uh, shaping up in terms of how ASU looks there. Right. Um, so I, I think they have a lot of energy and they have um, some, some good recruiters for sure. Uh, you, Sean Aguano has done a great job since he uh, took the job a couple years ago. Uh, just the, the talent that they added in the last class, very impressive uh, across the board. I think he connects and relates and is an easygoing personality and is a great fit uh, in, in, in that respect. Prentice Gill is one of the top younger uh, recruiters, I would say, in, in the Pac-12. I, I think he's um, you know top 10 type of a recruiter in the 2021 class in the Pac-12. And uh, I expect him to be successful in 2022 and beyond. Um, and then you have Adam Brenneman, a guy who was very instrumental in several of the additions that ASU made with their offensive line recruiting when uh, they felt like they needed to give it a boost last year with uh, Dave Christensen, you know, hanging up his hat and uh, some of the challenges that they had. So, uh, he's very dynamic. You know, he's a few weeks younger than Chris Hawkins, now the youngest 
coach in the Pac-12 at 25, turned 26 in March. And um, I, I think that, you know, these young coaches, they understand now, Mason, that the way that they can ascend in their careers is by looking good on the 247sports.com recruiter rankings, period. Like if though if these guys have their names in the top five or top ten of their conference and they're in their twenties, that's how they get a, a big salary increases and coveted by the top schools. There's a lot of money in this game, okay? And we're talking about coaches that are going from you know making you know hundred to two hundred thousand dollars to three hundred thousand or more dollars and that's not a bad thing, right, Mason? Not that many people are making three hundred thousand right. uh, dollars at at all, much less when you're in your twenties or maybe your early thirties coaching football. And guess what? A lot of people are good football coaches, including coaches that haven't lasted at ASU. And the reason they haven't lasted at ASU is because they haven't brought in the top upper echelon type of talent to enable the program to consistently compete with the USC's and Oregon's of the world in the Pac-12. But, um, you know, I think, I think between uh, Herm Edwards understanding, you know, more and more just how much of it is the recruiting piece. Initially he was like, it's 50%. And now he's like, it's 90% or 85%. And Antonio Pierce understands it. And I think as importantly as anything, I think Gene Boyd, who is, you know, sort of the, 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 the top administrator in charge of football who played at ASU football and has been around the program for decades now. He has seen what has happened with past administrations, uh, past uh, football staffs, and how that momentum has, you know, has petered out when, you know, uh, Todd Graham loses Mike Norvell and Chip Long, Chris Ball, and others in all at the same time. And what happened in, in previous regimes, like when, when Matt Lubick uh, left uh, Dennis Erickson's staff and he had basically been recruiting successfully like half of their class for the previous three years. And he was around when Dirk Cutter did put together the type of recruiting staff that was going to enable ASU to get over that sort of, you know, seven win uh, uh, plateau where you have good offensive scheme and uh, structure and the guys are well coached, but you don't have enough talent. And especially you don't have enough on the defensive end to really actually go to a different type of a place. Gene Boyd has seen all of that. And so now Gene Boyd is like, uh, you know, to, to the, to the degree that he can, I'm sure he's pushing to try to, um, you know, make sure that that what Ray Anderson laid out as the vision and the goal, as I said earlier, uh, that that the things are in place to be able to try to accomplish that. Right, and from a pure recruiting standpoint, at least in the 2021 class, ASU has four guys in the top 15 of the Pac-12 recruiter rankings by 24/7 Sports uh, calculations. And back in September, 24/7 put out the the 30 under 30 list, and ASU had two guys included in that, and that was Chris Hawkins and Adam Brenneman. And Greg Biggins said that Prentice Gill would have made the cut, but he had just uh, eclipsed that that 30 year old threshold, so so not quite. And so when you look at the staff overall, Antonio Pierce at 14, Chris Hawkins, number five in the class of 2021, and Prentice Gill at number seven, Adam Brenneman likely would have been 
up there, but but by the site standards, the he was a graduate assistant at the time. So those guys don't get the same primary recruiter treatment as regular position coach. I might have but, to go in there and make, I might have to go in there and make some changes. I might have to like <laughs> tweak some things. Yeah. You know, like now that to- now that you know now that Brenneman is actually a full time coach, I think I think it it's it's easier for me to go, be able to do that. But the the fact of the matter though, to your point, is he was really the the actual primary recruiter. Right on a few of those, you were going to say that, I know, uh, on a few of those uh, guys. And so he would have also been probably in the top 20. Right. So it's an indication of, of just the, the sheer talent at recruiting wise that these young guys have and, and what really got them the jobs at ASU in the first place. And then looking toward 2022, I mean, coaches have told you, Chris, that's shaping up to be one of the best recruiting classes if everything works out in program history. Am I wrong? Well, I, yeah, I think that their expectations are really high. They, they, uh, and that's that's a big part of it too. I think this is what's essential. Really, is you can't uh, unless you have that sort of mentality, that competitive spirit, that willingness to embrace what the expectations actually need to be. You're just never going to be successful enough at a place like ASU. It, it it requires that sort of mentality. So these coaches, they don't, they're not shying away or backing down from that. They're like, okay, uh, now we have a great recruiting staff and now that has to be reflected in terms of what we do. So what will be sort of a measure of success to me? We've never really seen ASU be able to push uh, higher than that 15 to 20 national range. Okay. So anything in that range is really good. Like it's really good if ASU ends up ranked in the, in the high teens, uh, in the, the final 24 seven sports national rankings and recruiting class. But, you know, it, it, I think that this staff wants to have the best, you know, type of results that we've ever seen at ASU, which would, which would mean, um, you know, pushing into where you're maybe doing a little bit better than the top 15. Uh, so I, I think that's sort of the, that's what we're going to be looking at. Like the top 25 is, you know, or, or, or hanging out around that top 25 sort of mark is not going to be considered a great success for this staff when they're going to sign a full class of kids. And they'll probably sign, you know, upward, you know, in the neighborhood of 25 uh, guys in that class, which also sort of makes it easier to have better rankings. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think 15 to 25 is sort of the, the expectation range and anything lower than 25 is probably going to be a little bit disappointing. And if they were, if they are somehow able to push even higher than 15, uh, that would be a pretty clear indication that they're operating at, at a level that we have not seen at any time really uh, in, in the internet era, you know, roughly the last, roughly this century. Right. And you make a great point about uh, class size and ASU's kind of been restricted in that regard with, with blue shirts over the ca- of the last couple of years and all the different rules and regulations in terms of bringing in new kids. And, and this year is also different just because of the NCAA's decision to freeze eligibility and the scholarship numbers and seniors not counting this year. But for those listening and, and subscribers uh, or for those who are not subscribed, make sure you get into the Devil Sanctuary. We have the, the most accurate 
accurate projection of what ASU's 2021 depth chart is going to look like, as well as the updated scholarship numbers, including all the details that you need to know uh, to see how ASU's scholarship roster looks for 2021. So make sure you subscribe and, and get in the Devil's Two links. Two links, Mason. One link has the entire distribution of the every scholarship by class so people can see it really clearly by class and by position and then another link that has the best early look at what the depth chart projects to be uh the and we're going to be updating them on real-time basis throughout the whole year the way that we have it now formatted and those are going to be pinned atop the devil sanctuary which is let's just not sugarcoat it like far and away easily the most active place where fans gather and talk about asu football the most serious of fans like there's a thread just about prentice gill that in the last day was it was 40 pages long i i i there's like you know i don't know how many more than 500 posts just about one subject matter and that type of stuff happens all the time and it's the only place where you're going to get that with staff like me covering the, the team at a very close level for many years now, regularly participating in that type of a conversation where you also have all the types of resources that we're talking about, recruiter rankings, prospect rankings, uh, um, you know, all these depth charts and scholarship distribution stuff. And I answer all the questions on a daily basis that people have, you know, there's really nothing that we don't have the ability to give a lot of great context to. So in this podcast, we have provided probably, you know, a, a conversation level that we typically tend to reserve maybe a little bit for some of our premium podcasts in terms of the detail of the analysis. But every once in a while, I love to throw that out there so that people can understand these are the types of, of, of conversations that we have on a daily basis, really, in a devil sanctuary on Sundable Source. And in reality, we're really just scratching the surface because there's so much yes. in the Devil's Sanctuary. So you guys got to – Chris is dropping knowledge on a daily basis. So make sure you get in there. And if you if you want to know the most accurate look at how ASU is going to look in 2021 – well, your first step is to subscribe to Sunnevel Source. So that's that, and it's a lot of great info, so make sure you get in there once again. But, Chris, we're going to transition to basketball now, something not so good in the, the ASU sports world because it's been a really disappointing season, uh, especially with the expectations that were placed upon the Sun Devils at the onset of the year. And, and sure, there's been COVID-related issues and, and all these type of setbacks. They haven't had their full roster for pretty much every single game this year. But excuses aside, they're in the midst of their first six-game losing streak since 2011. Earlier, it was the first five-game losing streak since Bobby Hurley took over the program in 2015. Very broadly... Uh, just before we kind of get into the weeds here, what do you see as ASU's biggest concerns right now? Well, that's just it. There's uh, enough of them, enough problems that they have that they're trying to uh, improve that you can't just look at any one or two things. and be like, okay, if they address those things, they're going to start winning a bunch of games. And that's what makes it so uh, problematic for them on the whole it is um 
you know, let's just look at their roster. First of all, they're from the personnel challenges and, and, and they, uh, you know, they, they haven't had a full team, you know, almost the whole year. Uh, they have had COVID issues. They, they haven't had a continuity of practicing and trying to really get into a rhythm and dialed in, but, uh, they have pretty clear limitations. You know, it's, it's the, the hope that Bobby Hurley and others had, and maybe it was wishful thinking was that the loss uh, th- that they had of Romello White probably would, that they, that they were hoping it wouldn't be that uh, big of a, of a hit to their program. And we're seeing right now, it has been a massive, massive hit to their, to their team. Um, and especially on the defensive end. They, uh, this is a, an ASU basketball team that is, is mediocre at best in terms of their on-ball defense and just their overall perimeter defense, both in isolation uh, situations and in pick-and-roll situations. Romello White was great because he, in ISO situations, he was an impressive help, help defender and an interior anchor. And in ball screen situations, he really did a great job of uh, the, the, the hedging coverages that they like to utilize and understanding when and how to move and, and extend uh, the, 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 off the ball screen or to retreat back to make sure that there weren't dump offs into the paint. And then also on the interior, he was a very good uh, position player and rebounder. And, you know, he's not an above the rim athlete, but he was a guy who understood how to be successful and what he needed to do do and why. And Jalen Graham, who ASU really anticipated uh, and hoped would be able to replace Romello White for really the entire season until uh, this, you know, Monday game against Arizona had really, really struggled in all those areas. he was trying to block shots that he wasn't blocking or altering, which then would take him out of position, which would then allow second chance opportunities for opponents. Uh, he, he wasn't at nearly as effective in a lot of these ball screen coverages. And uh, then Chris Austin, who they brought in as a junior college transfer to sort of try to give them another option uh, following White's departure. He, he's just, he's a little more limited in terms of just athletically what he's capable of doing. And it's not really his fault, but he's also now being thrust into PAC 12 play for the first time with some of those limitations. And it's very difficult. And, uh, so ASU's undersized relative to pretty much everybody that they're playing and they don't have as much experience and or brute strength and or talent at those four or five man positions. And, um, you know, and then if that was their only issue, okay, maybe they could overcome that. But on top of that, they have pretty significant issues on offense, um, ball sharing, you have in Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, Josh Christopher, three very ball dominant players who, you know, for the majority of their lives playing basketball, they've been able to create offense for themselves at a very high level. And so playing without the basketball, moving and operating in an offensive flow is that can be very difficult. And, um, you know, there is, has been a tendency, not, not, it's not necessarily because guys are just purely selfish, uh, but, but more so because, you know, guys want to win and they think that they can be that sort of, you know, key instrumental player in enabling wins by putting the team on their back from an offensive standpoint and the shot selection, which Bobby Hurley has always really embraced 
you know, players having more freedom has at times not been very good. And the, and so the offensive decision-making and flow has at times not been very good. And so, um, you know, then on top of that, it's like you don't always know what you have from, you know, in your interior offensive players, Jalen Graham, sometimes, you know, has been pretty good. Other times he hasn't, or he's been in foul trouble. So he hasn't been able to be on the floor. Chris Austin, he's, you know, not quite as uh, smooth and capable, um, you know, when he has the ball dumped into him. And um, so, yeah, I, I just think that there's a lot of problems and then um, sort of, you know, overarching theme on top of all of this is that they're, their consistency of effort and focus and discipline hasn't been good. Like Bobby Hurley said, really straightforward. They were not as energized to start the game against Arizona on Monday as he would have liked, or as they should have been. And that's like, it's, 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 it has to be a little bit alarming that a team is playing harder seemingly when they're down 10, 15 points with two or three minutes left in the game, desperately trying to come back, then they are desperately trying to not fall behind by 26 points in the first half. And that to me is a, that's maturity. That is the daily habits. That it is your culture. And all of those things, they, they still come back to coaching, right? Because Romello White said a lot of the same things about the team last year. And maybe even prior to that, that Jalen Graham is now saying this year and Romello White's not on the team anymore. So the, 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 the things that are consistent across the teams are that these issues about an irregular, uh, um, you know, energy level and habits and practice uh, focus and effort are, are problems. And this is the sixth year. Of, of, of Bobby Hurley. So there's a lot of things that you can't just like one, two, whatever you, even if you fix one or two, you still have, a, a, it's just like a panoply of other things that you still have to try to resolve. And this is why they're in this place, Mason, where they've lost six games in a row. Right. And you, the thing that's one of the most important elements, at least that I think you mentioned is Jalen Graham referencing the same issues that like you said Romello White did a year ago before he decided to transfer to Ole Miss uh, after initially I mean testing NBA waters but then he didn't feel it beneficial to come back to ASU because of these same issues that are still very much present and and Jalen Graham just said hey we're undisciplined we don't play together we're not playing together in practice and that's translating to the game and when that happens it's I mean that that's a serious issue so my question for you Chris is and I, and I mean you've kind of talked about this before at least on the devil sanctuary where does Bobby Hurley fall in terms of is his seat starting to get warm or is there leeway just based on everything that he has done in his six years leading up to this point? Yeah, that's everybody's asking that. I was just on, you know, uh, three TV for a segment they had uh, and they asked me that. And great job, by the way, uh, I, was, I was watching that. Appreciate it. Yes. I mean, you can't get into it with the, the level of, you know, depth of conversation you can in a podcast or whatever, but the, the, the reality is that ASU basketball is historically not very impressive. Uh, Bobby Hurley led ASU to 20 wins, three or more seasons in a row. They would have made a tournament last year. So 
would have been, you know, consecutive NCAA tournament appearances. And um, that has only happened one other time, three, three 21 seasons in a row since the 1960s. Okay. So uh, he also brought historic fan support. They set uh, attendance records in the, the last two seasons. And, you know, he recruited at a, at a, at a higher level on average overall than his predecessors, you know, the, getting Marcus Bagley and Josh Christopher, that's a highest ring duo, certainly in the last 20 years, if, if not all time at ASU. Um, you know, before that, of course, Lugens Dort, you know, uh, was a top 30. I think he was ranked number 30. Um, so they, there's, there's these really great sort of things that he's accomplished at ASU. And because of that, it is, and, and because of the challenges that are unique to a COVID type of a year, no fans in the arena, uh, having, you know, more guys out and not practicing and a lack of practice consistency and a lack of culture building uh, type um, endeavors that you can do outside of just being on the court. You know, there's bigger challenges and more of them than there ever have been. And so Bobby Hurley should definitely not be on the hot seat. I just want to make that clear. He deserves more time to try to resolve these things. Okay, but that does not diminish whatsoever everything that I said previously, which is how many the cha challenges that there are and the fact that some of these challenges appear to be more systemic than they are isolated to any one particular type of a season. And um, I also must say very candidly that um, when you do get guys like Christopher and Bagley, but that then it does not translate into playing on the highest stage with those players, right? M meeting your own expectation, but which Bobby Hurley clearly said he did not want to shy away from before the season. ASU was a top 25 preseason ranked team. They were, um, you know, number two in the Pac-12 preseason media poll, which is like very, very rare air expectations. But then when you have what everybody externally says is really good talent and star player, all American preseason coming back, Remy Martin, even with their front court personnel challenges being what they are, it leads uh, additional recruits in subsequent years and the people more importantly around them and recruiting against ASU to say to all of those people, well, look what they just did with, with Bagley and Christopher. They, you know, we'll see what ends up happening, but it looks like they're headed for a 500 or worse type of a season with their record. You know, I mean, they're, it would take a, it would take a phenomenal turnaround. Then they had a great turnaround last year after starting one and three. So it's not like impossible, but I think the challenges are steeper this year, even than last year, it would take a phenomenal turnaround for them to have a winning team and to make the NCAA tournament. I mean, they have a 1% chance at best of making the NCAA tournament. Uh, so, so what it does is it makes it a little bit tougher, at least a little bit tougher to get the same caliber of talent subsequently. And remember, I think our, you know, more, more uh, serious sort of, you know, fans who follow recruiting and stuff, they'll know, they'll look, the ASU doesn't have a top 150 level prospect in the high, in the 2022 high school class, uh, 2021, pardon me. 
So, uh, so that means that they're not going to be getting any freshmen in, um, you know, given how late it is in the year, unless something crazy happens, they're not going to be getting any freshmen arrivals this summer into, you know, this coming season, next season, um, that you would expect to be like Josh Christopher or Bagley. And on top of that, you're going to be losing Remy Martin and Alonzo Verge and others, Kamani Lawrence, you know, and maybe even more, more players beyond that. And so what that means is there's not a strong expectation and there can be some transfer portal moves and some overseas additions and late junior college guys. I mean, they, they, they have a lot of work to do still, I think, but it does not mean that there's, there's likely to be a clearly more talented team next season than this season. And so if you then have in your sixth and seventh seasons uh, uh, under Bobby Hurley, uh, a clear regression uh, where you backslide, even with really highly regarded players, it, that makes it much more, much more difficult to recover from that and climb out of it. Now it's not impossible. I, I would remind ASU fans that after Herb Sendak had uh, three 21 seasons, the only other time that it happened, uh, you know, in the last uh, 50, you know, almost 60 years, I guess um, uh, the, the, he had three 21 seasons. Then he had a dip of two years where they had problems in recruiting. They had some staffing losses and other issues that really affected them. And then they circled back, came back and they won 20, win game, 20 wins or more, I think in two seasons in a row, but uh, they weren't able to sort of sustain it. And then he was, he was dismissed. So it's not like it can't happen. And Bobby Hurley uh, has shown that he can put together a winner from, you know, um, you know, starting from not a great, you know, uh, situation with the personnel. So that means he definitely can do it again. It's just that it's unfortunate for him and for ASU and, and this whole program that when they looked like they were turning the corner and going to maybe a different place than we've seen ASU ever be at, they've now had this type of a season, which is just so profoundly disappointing that it's not just disappointing for ASU. It's one of the most disappointing teams in the whole country season and that's uh that's not a, a something that you know people are going to be you know happy to hear but it but you, you you have to be really you know dead on about the what the reality situation actually is right i mean last in the pac 12 kind of speaks volumes in that regard and regarding all the losses that i mean you're you're talking about from next to projecting to next year's team i mean they do have Luther Muhammad waiting in the wings and the kind of similar Zylan Cheatham role who didn't play this year, but going to be on the roster next year. And, mm -hmm. I and mean, Rob Edwards. Rob yeah. Edwards. Right. Is, is that going to be a saving grace? No, but I mean, it, it'll help. It's, it helps them. It helps, it helps them for sure. You right. Know? And, and also let's face it. I mean, I, the individual pieces of Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, Josh Christopher, probably more talent than the individual pieces of Trey Holder, Cody Justice, Shannon Evans, right? But, but it still comes down to how you actually play together. And so the challenge of like making sure that you recruit not only great talent, but great talent that also fits your culture and what you're trying to be as a team. And the, the, the willingness and ability to buy into that and play really cohesively together, it's very difficult. I don't envy Bobby Hurley at all. 
and 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 Rashawn Bruno, who's his longtime right hand man, they have a very difficult job at ASU. Very, very difficult. But again, they're getting paid tons of money. And so you can't feel too bad, you know. <laughs> like, you know, right. they 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 know. They know what you know, they know how tough that it is and what they need to do, you know, to be successful. And they I'm sure they understand at least a lot of the things that have um gone wrong for them. Right. We'll see if they can kind of turn it around in similar fashion as they did last year, make a late run. And then if the Pac-12 tournament happens, see if they can uh, make an NCAA tournament run by winning the Pac-12 championship, which, which hasn't happened before. So that's a, a tall order there, for sure. There are but, some, there are some like, there are some just to interject one last thing. There's some like, you know, and this, you know, it may be good and bad, but there's some like, Lorenzo Romar slash Ernie Kent type vibes with this team, meaning that they can look bad and then all of a sudden they can, they can really get hot and they can then go on some crazy runs like late in the season or in the postseason tournament or something like that. So I, I'm, I would never totally rule it out. It's just that they, they, you know, the Jalen Graham is going to have to continue to make strides and everybody else is going to have to get onto the same page and play a better overall team brand of basketball. Right. Get more disciplined. And, and that starts in practice, which Bobby Hurley said was there were some red flags even before the season got started. But before we wrap this thing up, Chris, can uh, do you have any final thoughts before we finish it up? Well, no, I just, uh, again, it, it, you know, this was more, this felt a little bit more like a premium podcast in terms of the, the you know, the more the detail and analysis that we went into. And I know people, there's definitely people who are just really, really huge podcast junkies. And, um, you know, so we do as many premium podcasts pretty much as we do free. So you're going to get, you know, this type of, uh, of conversation in those podcasts. And also, as we said earlier, you know, in all of our VIP content, in the devil sanctuary and, and on some of the source. So uh, I just want to, you know, things have been great with our, with our, with our, uh, our, our audience in the last year. I've been so thankful to everybody. We actually um, did not lose numbers at all. We actually grew very slightly in this whole last year with COVID, which is crazy kind of to say. Um, I'm, I'm very thankful for all of that. And now we're just extremely excited, interested in covering what I think should be, you know, one of ASU's best teams uh, in recent history in 2021. I'll probably, I'll just tease this right now. I haven't picked ASU to win the South since I've been a media poll voter in the Pac-12, but I will probably pick ASU to win the South this year. And so uh, I just think with the roster and the staffing and having their uh, now being in year two with their schemes and Jane Daniels having a lot more sort of uh, experience under his belt and working with these offensive players and, and how much of a veteran group they have on defense. A lot of things are sort of coalescing and we're very excited about being able to cover that for really passionate ASU fans uh, for the rest of this year and beyond. That's a carp bomb right there. We'll see who sticks around for the entire podcast and uh, and and talks about that in our Devil Sanctuary. So if you guys like this uh, podcast, make sure you subscribe once again. Uh, get all the access into the forum and to all of our VIP content. But right now, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for site publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Mason Kern, saying so long. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.